it is one of my favorites because I did have the chance to make this at home because I was like, let me see. Let me see what this is all about. You know, I actually, I did not have access to Copper River Red Salmon um, because I would have had to have it flown from Alaska. Um, but I used, you know, uh, wild caught normal salmon. <laughs> Your publisher um, wouldn't pay for that to be flown in for you. <laughs> Come on, give me a break. Hi, everyone. I'm Stephanie. And I'm Jeremy. And we are the authors of Where Should We Camp Next? And Where Should We Camp Next? National Parks. This season, we are back with a brand new RV and brand new adventures. Join us now as we cover the best campgrounds, the best rigs, the best food, and the best gear to bring with you when you go. So pull up a chair and join us around the digital campfire. This is the RV Atlas. Hello, everybody, and welcome to today's episode of the RV Atlas. Now, we have been celebrating national parks all summer long on the podcast, and that is partly because we have our book out, Where Should We Camp Next? National Parks. So we wanted to do uh, a season of podcasting that wasn't necessarily every episode on national parks. But we wanted to dedicate a lot of time and space to our national parks because we love them so much. And we wanted to have on other authors of, of national parks-centric books. So I am thrilled to have back on the show today, Linda Lee. She's the author of the National Parks Cookbook, the best recipes from and inspired by America's national parks. And what she does, the methodology here is so cool. Some of the recipes are directly from the National Park Lodges. Some are somewhat recreated. And then some are her own unique recipes inspired by our national parks, places like Joshua Tree, et cetera, et cetera. And she has recipes from Acadia to Zion, from coast to coast. This is a geographically diverse book. It is filled with a lot of history and the culture of our national parks. Uh, I love every single thing about this. If you're a foodie, you need to get the National Parks Cookbook. If you're a National Parks lover, you need to get the National Parks Cookbook. And if you're a foodie and a National Parks lover, you really need to get this cookbook. It is gorgeous. The photography by her husband, Will Taylor, is amazing. Even the fonts and the cover of the book really capture that sense and spirit of adventure that we have on our National Parks trip. And this book made me realize that our, our culinary experiences in our national parks are a huge part of the experience. They do provide the framework, as Linda says, for a national parks visit. So this is a terrific interview. She's going to give us a broad overview of the book, but then she's also going to talk about two recipes from each of the four sections. You're going to want to listen to this podcast and go right out and grab a copy of the National Parks Cookbook by Linda Lee, the best recipes from and inspired by America's national parks, recipes from Acadia to Zion. So we will be back in a second with Linda Lee. But first, we have a sponsored message from our friends at Blackstone. The sound of bacon or burgers and steaks sizzling is the sound that you crave this summer. Blackstone is the original flat-top griddle with more than 9 million griddles sold. Blackstone is the way that America cooks in the great outdoors. You can cook everything you can on a traditional grill and a thousand things you can't. Want an incredible breakfast? How about lunch or dinner? The solid steel flat-top infuses the flavors. Pick the size and style that's right for your next camping trip. The 17-inch and 22-inch griddles are easy to store in your RV and still have the space to feed the hungriest army. There's even a portable Blackstone with an air fryer built in. Talk about variety. With Blackstone, you can cook anything, anytime, anywhere. 
They even make a portable pizza oven that you can bring camping. For outdoor cooking fun and flavor that you can't find anywhere else, go wherever griddles are sold or head on over to blackstoneproducts.com. And remember, if it's not a Blackstone, it's not a griddle. Hello, Linda Lee, and welcome back onto the RV Atlas. How is your summer going in Oregon, I think, right? Yes, it is going great, but actually I've spent most of my summer in Washington so far, camping, of course. <laughs> oh, I love the Pacific Northwest. That's what it's one of my favorite states, Washington. So you've been camping a lot, like tent camping, RV camping, or what are you doing? RV camping. Uh, we spent the first part of um, July around the Seattle area, uh, just city sightseeing with my family. But after that, we went into Olympic National Park and we spent a couple of days at Lake Crescent, and then a couple of days at Solduck Hot Springs, which is probably my favorite hot springs right now. <laughs> my boys loved it there. Your Olympics, my favorite national park, as our listeners know, and uh, the boys loved that the Solduck Springs. It, the, the smell was a little bit strong, right? But it, it was still still pretty is. awesome. But the variety of pools makes up for it. And my kids actually don't even really care about the hot springs. They love the big freshwater pool. <laughs> Yeah, we loved all that. And then Lake Crescent, too. We rented a canoe there, and we went out, and it was rather windy and rough. And um, I have some beautiful pictures of us canoeing, but my son was practically crying the whole time, and we had to, like, turn around and go back. Oh, and no. It was one of those instances where social media was, like, totally lying about the experience. But those are some <laughs> great places to visit in the summer. Good for you. Yeah. Yeah, and now I'm home for just a little bit, but we do have a lot more RV camping ahead for the rest of summer. Awesome. So about a year ago, you were on the show and you did an episode called Quick Tips and Delicious Recipes for Dutch Oven Cooking, which was really great for all the Dutch Oven fans in our audience. And I will link to that in our show notes. So if you have any new listeners, you can go back and listen to that episode. That was a terrific episode. Today, our topic is going to be your brand new book, The National Parks Cookbook, which might be my favorite of all of your wonderful books. But before we, we dive in and, and talk about some of the recipes and, and what that book is all about, could you just give us a run through of all your different books? Because I think they're um, must-haves, really, for our RV camping audience on this podcast. So we'll start out with National Parks Cookbook, because that is the newest one. And um, we'll talk about it on the show, but it's all the classic recipes from your favorite national parks, as well as recipes inspired by the parks. Um, there's also the New Camp Cookbook, which has been a perennial bestseller, and a follow-up to that, which is the Backyard Fire Cookbook, which is all about cooking over a live fire. There's a compilation if you couldn't decide between New Camp or Backyard Fire. We created the Ultimate Outdoor Cookbook, which pulls the best recipes from both books. So if you just love to cook outside, that is the book to get. And then there's also the No Waste Vegetable Cookbook, which I think actually pertains to RVers and campers because it teaches you how to use every part of the vegetable that you buy or grow. So there's very little waste. So you are, you know, you're spending a lot of your time cooking either sort of in a backyard setting or obviously you travel a lot and you're an RV owner. Um, is that your ultimate love is cooking outside? Are you equally happy in the, in the kitchen in your house? Um, tell us what you love the most. I love both. Uh, I do love cooking at home just because all of my tools, you know, are there. Um, and I also love cooking outside because I love being outside. I like being under like a, you know, a canopy of trees or a big open sky or even just this night, night starry sky. Um, you know, there's, there's cooking is just great, you know, either way, because there's also great company outside, usually when you're cooking. 
I started out tent camping, so I cooked a lot over um, coals or a fire, you know, in a Dutch oven um, or a camp stove. Uh, when I got my RV, that actually kind of changed my life because I had an oven. <laughs> um, and so I can't, like, I love cooking in the RV because of the convenience and being able to prep inside without a bunch of bugs getting into the food, you know, extra protein is what I call it. Um, but I, but if there's an opportunity for me to griddle outside or grill outside, I would take it. Awesome. And one thing I do love about your books is it seems like in, in terms of outdoor cooking, which is what I do, um, you kind of like it all. Like you just said, griddling, grilling, ch- you know, charcoal or propane or whatever. You seem to um, do a little bit of everything. Yeah. I mean, food, when it is slightly charred, you know, by like smoke or just like scented by the air of pine, um, somehow tastes better. Yeah, for sure. When you're outside. Now, this is recipes from and inspired by national parks. So can you break that down a little bit more, like what that means um, so we could get kind of the methodology for this book? Because it's pretty cool. So the recipes that I pulled together for the National Parks Cookbook, um, a good portion of them are actual recipes from the national parks themselves. So you'll find a lot of these long-standing classics, like the boysenberry pie from Yosemite, which has been served for 60 years at the lodge, or the Roosevelt baked beans from Yellowstone. Um, These are recipes that have been around forever, and these are the recipes given to me by the park. So if you've ever been to one of the lodges or the restaurants and wished, you know, you could recreate that uh, flavor at home, now you can. Um, But of course, not every national park has its own lodge or dining option. And so for those parks, I created original recipes that were inspired by the region. Um, You know, so there's uh, cornbread um, for the... um, New River Gorge, or there's uh, Frogmore Stew, you know, for um, the South. So there's recipes that are regional, and there's also recipes that are inspired by the flora and fauna of the parks. So one of my favorites is Bryce Canyon. I created the butterscotch martini. <laughs> so that that two pronged approach really is at the heart and soul of this book, right? Because it's like your own creative cookbook. Then there's also a lot of national park history in there. And before uh, almost every recipe, you kind of describe the recipe a little bit and the role that it has in the history of the park. So like, I feel like this is a really good cookbook for a national parks fan, even if you don't cook. Like if you're somebody that loves national parks and you read national parks book, like there is a lot in here for you, even if you don't cook. Then if you're a national parks fan and you cook like this this book's like a dream basically right yeah i could totally take you back to those memories awesome now i love the the front parts in general i like the front parts of cookbooks that get a, a little bit into technique and gear and, and methodology and, and your books have been great with that too so before we get into the actual recipes from the different parks what's some of the material that you have at the front of this cookbook to kind of set everybody up for success So to start off the book, I actually have some history about how National Park started. Um, You know, one of my favorite things about this book was doing all of the research for it, like really learning the true backstory of how Yellowstone became the first national park, um, how the railway system really were the ones that developed the park system. Um, So that's how I, you know, I wanted to give that background for someone diving into this book. Then it goes into the different kitchen tools and ingredients that I use at home, but also that are used throughout this book. So there is some consistency if you're wondering what kind of salt to use or 
what kind of flower did I use to achieve, you know, the results in the book, you will get that as well as recommendations for the types of pots and pans and, um, you know, blenders and things like that that are used. Uh, and then it goes into standards and techniques. So, um, you know, when I say one cup flour, you'll know exactly what that one cup measurement is without weighing it because it's the scoop and sweep method, which I use, you know, because some people are like, oh, do I spoon it in? You know, um, you know, do I weigh it out? But, you know, I give the standards and the techniques of how I do things so that you can get a similar result in your own recipe making. And was this like, was this book like more work than than your other cookbooks in terms of there being more research or because you were pulling uh, some of the recipes from the parks? Was it was it about the same? Was this a very different project for you as a cookbook author? It was a very different project. And I would say it definitely was more time consuming. Um, not only did it require more travel, which I'm not complaining about because I definitely loved going around to all the national parks and sampling the menus and talking to the chefs. Uh, but there was quite a bit of research involved in how um, how recipes became established or, you know, why they were used and um, why they became favorites. And I also had to work with a lot of chefs and um, media teams, publicity teams to get the actual recipes themselves. And so depending on other people for that uh, side of the project was a challenge, especially because I was writing this book in the middle of summer when I was traveling and, you know, summer is the busiest time for the parks. Um, so trying to get in touch with the teams that I needed to get these recipes was, there was a lot of phone tag, I can tell you that. <laughs> and then when they're, you know, not as busy in the fall or winter, then they're like trying to close down and get out of there. Were some people not really wanting to share or discuss the, the, the recipe? <laughs> I mean, were some people sort of unwilling to participate? And did that shape ultimately shape the content a little bit? Yes. Yeah. I either, you know, I had a couple of um, chefs, you know, they don't want to share their secret recipes. Um, and then some of them were just too busy. And so gotcha. that definitely my outline for the recipes I wanted to include did change because of that. All right, let's talk about those four major sections of the book. Um, so what, how, do, how do you break down the parks in, in, into four different sections in this uh, cookbook? So I start out with the top 10 national parks uh, by visitor volume, uh, and then it goes into national parks of the West, national parks of the Midwest and East, and then uh, because Alaska is its own beast, they are their own section, the parks in, from that region. I wanted to ask about Alaska because it it's just kind of stuck out a little bit. Oh my God, Alaska gets its own section here. Do you have a particular love or fondness for traveling to Alaska? Or was it just that the like cuisine was so different that it needed to have its own separate section? So I was actually surprised because when I was doing the initial outline, I thought Alaska would be lumped in with, you know, the Midwest. Um, but once I really got into um the lodges that were there and um you know, the type of cuisine that was there, I realized that it had to be its own section because it's vast. So, uh, and it's probably, I would say it's probably my favorite section based on uh, my interaction with the lodges and the chefs who are in Alaska, as well as the variety of food. I think the recipes are so unique because a lot of them use, um, you know, ingredients that are foraged from their environment, which I thought was really special. So a lot of this is tied into these national park lodges, which um, a lot of RV owners don't necessarily stay in those lodges because they have RVs or they, you know, are tent campers or, and they tent camp. Um, 
Stephanie and I and the boys have actually tried to stay in, in some of these lodges. And it's definitely a goal for me, uh, sort of a bucket list item to stay in more of them because they're so beautiful. So did you um, get to visit some of these lodges or do you have a favorite one you've, you've stayed in or were you more like day tripping into the lodges um, like a lot of people do that are, RV, you know, RVing? So I tend to day trip into the lodges. I have stayed at the Awani, um, but yeah, like you, I RV, and so I'm usually in a campground, but I love going into the lodges because they do have great restaurant options and bars there. Uh, so a lot of, I've eaten a lot <laughs> in the lodges for sure. You know, sometimes you just get tired of cooking on the road and you want to see what they've got to offer. And you're eating in these grand environments in the lodges. So we're going to come back in a second and Linda's going to talk about two recipes from each of these sections. I'm so excited because there's some that she's going to talk about that were like totally unexpected to me. And then you picked a few that I was actually hoping you would pick. Um, but we'll be back in a second. We're going to dive into some of the recipes from the book. And if you really want the full recipes and you want to review them and you want to cook these things, you're going to have to go out and buy this wonderful, wonderful cookbook. Uh, so we'll be back in a second with Linda Lee. But before we do so, we have a sponsored message from our friends at Camco Outdoors. Camco is one of our favorite companies in the outdoor recreation industry. For more than 50 years, they have remained a trusted North Carolina-based manufacturer specializing in innovative products for the RV, marine, outdoor living, and outdoor recreation markets. You may know them best by their American-made Rhino sewer hoses, Taste Pure water filters, EvoFlex drinking water hoses, and TST toilet chemicals, but their lineup of products doesn't end there. Camco continues to deliver products that bridge the gap between you and your next great adventure. From portable grills and campfires to ease lift hitches and power grip electrical adapters, they seem to be doing it all. There's a saying that if you own an RV, you are sure to own a Camco product or two. And it's true. We still use Camco products that we bought 12 years ago when we started RVing. This year, we are stocking up our new RV with go-to Camco products like their collapsible laundry basket and their life is better at the campsite dishes and mugs. Head to CampcoOutdoors.com to check out all of the cool stuff that Camco makes and get 10% off your entire order with our discount code RVAtlas10. Welcome back to the show, everybody. We are here with Linda Lee, the author of many excellent cookbooks, but the newest one, the one we're discussing today, is the National Parks Cookbook, The Best Recipes From and Inspired by America's National Parks, Recipes from Acadia to Zion. And I love subtitles of books because they tell us so much. Uh, and this is uh, authored by you. And the wonderful photographs are by your husband, Will Taylor. And you guys make make quite a team now has he done the photography for all of your cookbooks most of your cookbooks every single cookbook awesome and the photography is absolutely wonderful and um i i, I can't stand it when you get a, a cookbook and the photography subpar it kind of just like ruins the whole experience this is like world-class um photography thank you so, so much <laughs> yeah tell him i said that the photos are great so let's talk about um, the first section, and let's get two recipes from the first section. As you mentioned, these are the 10 most visited national parks. So take us to Yellowstone for the first one. And I'm really glad you picked this one because it's like very approachable, and I feel like I could try to do this one. Yes, this Roosevelt baked beans is my pick for Yellowstone. It is one of my absolute favorite recipes, probably the one that I've made the most from this book. Um, and I, I actually was not aware of its popularity, but I went into the Roosevelt Lodge um, one summer and the baked beans were a side dish to something else I had, I think tamales or something. 
but the baked beans were so good where I was thinking, God, I could really eat a whole bowl of this. Like it really stood out more than the entree. So um, Yellowstone is very kind. The executive chef there was Mike Dean. He is no longer there. But when I was writing the book, he was gracious enough to provide several recipes um, from Yellowstone's menus. And I told him I needed to get Roosevelt baked beans. And he said that it's actually the most requested recipe from the park. From the Uh, entire park. And do they just have it at the Roosevelt Lodge? Or is this something? Because the Roosevelt Lodge is like way up near Lamar Valley, I think. Yeah. Or is this something? Yeah. (laughs) Can you get this at different places in Yellowstone? Or do you have to go to the Roosevelt Lodge? You got to go to the Roosevelt Lodge dining room. Or you can go to the Old West uh, dinner cookout that they have. But they only serve it in that part of the park. Yeah, and a lot of people don't even get up there, so. I know, right? It's kind of like a little hidden gem. And then once you've tried it, you're like, whoa, like, this is really terrific with barbecue. Um, Like, it's with hot dogs and hamburgers. It's really fantastic. So what I love when I, my initial impressions of tasting this in the restaurant was, wow, like the amount of beans, like the variety, because some were like um, a little bit chewy and some were super silky. Um, so there's just like this great mishmash of flavors and textures uh, mixed in with all that savoriness that I love. Um, I, it's really hard to explain, honestly. This is a must make. And it's, a, and it's, I mean, you could probably not do it in a Dutch oven, but you recommend it as a Dutch oven dish, correct? I do, just because um, it really lets the flavors like mingle together without burning any part of the beans that you use. Um, and it's really easy to uh, easy to make. You know, it's just this one pot meal and you can whip it up, you know, at the beginning of the day for dinner and just let it simmer or stay warm. And a lot of the like the recipes in the book are really great for ma- making at home in your home kitchen. And some of them are, you know, do have a lot of ingredients. But you know, this one does look like it would work really well at the campground, like you said, just with burgers and dogs on the 4th of July or something like that. Yeah, it is fantastic. And, you know, I've also made this at home and instead of doing it on the stovetop, which is the method that I write about in the cookbook, um, because I was making a lot of other things on the stovetop at that time, I actually just put the beans in the oven. And I just like a very slow bake in the oven for hours and it turned out amazing. I want them right now. Okay, so let's move on. <laughs> let's move on, though. Let's go to Acadia National Park. And this is one of the ones I was like hoping you you would pick because I've actually had these in Acadia. So what did you choose from Acadia National Park? And give us a little bit of the, like, the backstory there. So I chose the perfect popovers from Acadia. If you've ever been to Jordan Pond House, this is their top selling item. They actually make, um, what was it, like upwards of like 6,000 popovers a day that people eat on the lawn. Um, And the interesting thing about these popovers is that I could not get the official recipe from the Jordan Pond House. Um, And so when I was looking around, I saw that there were actually quite a few recipes, you know, copycat recipes for these. And they even include a recipe for it in their own Jordan Pond House cookbook. But the thing, I live at um, elevation. I'm like right around 4,000, 4,500 feet. And popovers, well, baking in general is kind of tricky. And with popovers, you know, a lot of times people get frustrated because they deflate um, really quickly or they never rise at all. And the thing with popovers is that they need to be like these big, billowy, you know, fluffy pieces of uh, bread. And so my recipe actually works for anyone living at any elevation. You're always going to have success. They are always going to pop and rise every single time you take them out of the oven and it's easy. 
and the trick is all in the type of flour that you use. And the temperature, I thought you mentioned. Yeah, and the temperature as well. Now, were there to- were, did, did this type of scenario happen to you in other places in the book where you couldn't get the recipe and you were sort of like recreating it and adding your own twist and spin to it? Or was this more of the exception to the rule? No, there were quite a few recipes where, um, for whatever reason, I could not get the official recipes. But because I had eaten these in the restaurant, um, I I could recreate them to to what I feel is a close <laughs> replica. I think this is like a really cool one to have in the book as well for a very strange reason. Uh, Jordan, Jordan Pond House is so crowded now and so hard to get into in the summer. And a lot, I mean, we hear from people over and over again that they can't get a reservation. They can't get in. They, they're dying to try these popovers and they leave Acadia frustrated. Um, so it's in the cookbook, everybody. So if you want to yeah. make them at home and you can't get into Jordan Pond House, you can do so. Yeah, and very uh, easy to make. And I also included a recipe for the lobster stew, which is also served at Jordan Pond House. My own um, rendition of what their lobster stew is. And uh, I feel like I add a little bit extra something to uh, my recipe, but now you can. Yeah, now you have something to dip your popovers into. Is, are you like a real seafood lover in terms of, of, of your cooking? It does it does seem to be a fair amount in the book, or maybe just because I was looking at Alaska before we started talking. <laughs> I do like seafood. I grew up eating a lot of seafood. You know, on uh, this summer, I actually went clam digging for the first time um, in Washington. And so I definitely love like fish and shellfish. All right, awesome. Let's go to the next section. And of course, there's eight other uh, recipes from that first section. So guys, we're just uh, scraping the surface here on this podcast. Let's move to the National Parks of the West. Um, so take us to Zion National Park, I believe, first. What, what did you pick from Zion? So it's actually not Zion, but it's related. It's Mesa Verde okay, National right. Park. Um, and I chose Navajo fry bread, which if you have been to Zion or Mesa Verde or Grand Canyon or anywhere in the Four Corners region, you have likely come across fry bread, um, usually at like a little roadside stand and sometimes in one of the restaurants or, you know, snack stands. Navajo fry bread, um, I have a recipe for just like plain fry bread, but you can definitely dress it up. The way that I usually get it when I'm on the road is dusted with powdered sugar. Sometimes you can also do cinnamon sugar. It kind of depends on how you like it, you know, plain, savory, or sweet. Um, but the fry bread recipe here is also used for the Navajo tacos, which I talk about on the Zion page. Because at the Zion Lodge, their Red Rock Grill, they serve a version of their Navajo tacos. Um, And I recreated that using my own fry bread and using like a quick chili that I give a recipe for. I love the little did you know um, sidebars too, which give some of the history of the recipes or some of the cultural connections. Um, Really nice touch throughout the cookbook. So those are great too. Um, anything else you want to say about the Navajo fry bread, or should we move to um, JT, as you call it in the book? <laughs> yeah, well, I think fry bread is a classic. Um, if you're a fan of it, uh, I think you'll enjoy this one. Um, and yeah, you know, an interesting bit of history that I should mention about the fry bread is that, um, you know, it's it's typically thought of as an authentic native food. Um, but technically or historically speaking it wasn't like a true native food it was something that became a native food uh, based on necessity and it's kind of a sad story because you know um when they 
were gathered together into these reservations, they no longer could uh, hunt and grow their own fresh produce. And so they had their um, ration of like flour and lard and sugar, and they had to create something with that in order to survive. And so the Native Indians, um, Native Americans created this fry bread, uh, you know, just for sustenance, and it became a staple of their diet um, through today. And sort of then ironic that we're serving this in a national park lodges yeah. for tourists today. <laughs> you know, exactly. that is the, the, the history gets gets complex with our national parks at different points. So I'm, I'm certainly glad you brought that up. So um, shall we move to Joshua Tree and yeah. shroom jerky? <laughs> yes. So shroom jerky has nothing to do with Joshua Tree, if I'm being honest. It was a fun recipe that I wanted to create. Uh, because I was looking for a recipe or, you know, ingredient or a food item that I, that I could immediately associate with J-Tree um, or JT as what the locals call it. Um, so if you've ever been there, if you've ever heard um, people talk about Joshua Tree, it is, it's got this otherworldly reputation, you know, like, um, you know, there's the belief that inside the park, there's quite a number of spiritual vortexes. Um, and it's got this like really mysterious kind of hippie vibe to it, you know. So people who go there, you know, they might be um, searching for themselves, uh, searching for transcendence, you know, uh, trying to um, trying to discover something about the universe. And you know, a lot of that includes like a good trip on on something, you know, of their choice. And so, <laughs> so now, this, the truth. This isn't exactly that kind of magic mushroom trip here, but it's it a, but not it's a magic a, it's mushroom in, inspired by perhaps. Yeah. So I have shroom jerky, which I think is a really great recipe. Um, if you are vegetarian or even if you just want to try something different from just like beef or pork jerky, uh, there's this umami bomb um, when you try a piece of this mushroom jerky because it is so flavorful and the texture is so similar to meat. Um, that you might not even miss meat. And the great thing about mushrooms is that they're like sponges. So they really soak up all the flavors that you marinate them in. You know, so I have a recipe for this really great um, uh, flavor um, combo that is uh, like sesame oil, vi wine vinegar, soy sauce. You know, it's very savory, but you can actually play around with your own combination of like... Um, some kind of like savory seasoning and then like an acid, uh, you know, play around with like levels of sweetness to what your desire is, but they're easy to make. And it's actually a great snack to make ahead of your trip because they're easy to tote along if you're hiking or um, to share at camp. So this is just a fun, fun recipe. So the national parks, at least in, in definitely in certain places in this book, were the muse for the recipes, correct? I mean, that sounds like a really fun part of doing a book like this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. You know, trying to, um, just trying to, you know, I feel like a lot of national parks have their own personality. <laughs> and so sure. some of these recipes for like the parks that do not have their own dining options, I was just kind of trying to picture like what would be the personality of this park and what food item could I associate with it? So, like, if you were the head chef at a new lodge built in one of these parks, like, what would you want on the menu? So, uh, <laughs> I, I love it so much. All right, we have more recipes to cover and two more sections of the book to cover. So, we're going to come back in a second with more from Linda Lee, the author of the National Parks Cookbook. But before we do so, we have a sponsored message from our friends at Yogi Bear's Jellystone Park Camp Resorts. 
Our family has been staying at Jellystone Park locations for 12 years. There are more than 75 Jellystone Park locations across the United States and Canada, and each one is unique, but our kids love them all because each Jellystone Park location has fun attractions like pools, water slides, splash grounds, mini golf, laser tag, and jumping pillows. Plus, there are tons of activities all day and all night long, such as foam parties, dance parties, wagon rides, tie-dye, and movie nights. They even have themed weekends like Chocolate Lovers Weekend, Christmas in July, and Halloween weekends in the fall. Of course, we can't forget the fun of hanging out with Yogi Bear, Boo Boo, and Cindy Bear. And at Jellystone Park, you can stay in your RV or enjoy one of their awesome glamping accommodations as many of their locations offer luxury cabins, yurts, covered wagons, and more. Make Jellystone Park a part of your family's vacation in 2023 because it's not just a campground. It's a Jellystone Park. To learn more and to book your vacation today, visit JellystonePark.com. That's JellystonePark.com. And please, don't forget to tell Yogi Bear that Jeremy and Stephanie said hello. Welcome back to the show, everybody. We are here with Linda Lee, the author of the National Parks Cookbook, a brand new cookbook that is really beautiful and captures that spirit of adventure that goes along with our national parks, but in a culinary way. Um, And now we're going to dive into two recipes from the national parks of the Midwest and the East. And I'm calling it right now. This recipe from Shenandoah National Park is the one I want the most. I want this right now. After we finish this interview, I want to taste this. And your husband's picture of this is insane. It's as close as I've ever come to feeling like I could taste food from a picture. So um, take, take us to Shenandoah National Park and tell us what you got there. So if you've ever visited Shenandoah, chances are you have either ordered or you've probably seen someone order the Mile High Blackberry Ice Cream Pie. It is, it's infamous. Um, and when you look at it, you'll understand why, because it is this massive hunk of um, an ice cream pie. I mean, I can't really describe it, but it's got, you know, you've got like um, a layer of blackberry ice cream on the bottom. And that it's topped, and what it's named for is this like big pillowy meringue topping, and then drizzled with um, a compote. And so it's it's crazy. Like <laughs> I don't know I mean, if anyone's the, ever finished it. I, so we stayed, ironically, we stayed at Big Meadow Lodge, um, and and this I think you mentioned is it Skyland Lodge? Forgive me, um, mm-hmm. as a place as a place to get it, which is not that far away, actually. So we had blackberry ice cream, but to my great shame, I have not had the, the mile high blackberry <laughs> ice cream pie. Now, um, this might be a little bit challenging to recreate for the home cook, though, no? No, actually, I had a lot of fun making this. So so to be honest, I'm not a big dessert person, um, but I made this pie because I knew that I had to get a picture of this recipe for the book. Because I felt like, oh, my God, it's like it sounds so obnoxious and awesome. (laughs) And so um, the only difficult thing, I think, for a home cook is that you do have to have a little torch, you know, like the same torch that you would use for creme brulee. Um, And I was a little intimidated by that, but it's actually really fun to torch the meringue after you make it. And the meringue is super easy to make, you know, and so I use for um, just ease of making the recipe. I recommend a pre-made graham cracker crust. Um, so that you don't have to make your own pie crust. Then you just scoop in very hard ice cream, let that freeze. 
and then you just put um, you just make the meringue in a mixer and you just like let that go around and around and then you scoop it on top of that ice cream layer. Now you said you're not big on desserts. I'm 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 wondering what you think about this question here. Like, are the national park lodges not necessarily big on dessert? I mean, we've been to a bunch of these restaurants, and I. I certainly recall having a lot of great meals and I see a lot of great options for entrees in this book, but is that just maybe something the national parks aren't even very good at in terms of food and the lodging? That's a good question. And I'm not really sure. You know, what I do see a lot of are pies. I think in every, like most restaurants that I see, there's the dessert option is usually a pie of some kind, you know, so there's this uh, blackberry ice cream pie here. Uh, If you go to Capitol Reef, um, one of, this is not like necessarily in their lodge, but it's in their gift shop. Um, right by the orchards, they serve these little mini pies um, that they also serve thousands of every day. Um, and then, uh, you know, Semidi has their boysenberry pie. So I feel like pie is pretty popular, but they don't have like the kinds of desserts that you think of, like when you go to a restaurant and you have like a whole selection. Right, right. All right, let's go for something very different. Let's head to the U.S. Virgin Islands. And this is one of those ones that kind of took me by surprise. What is the recipe that you have there? And was it from the park or inspired by the park? This is inspired by the park. So um, earlier uh, in the beginning of the podcast, I mentioned that some of these recipes were inspired by just the region of what people eat there. Um, And that is what this recipe is. It's fried fish and hunji with Creole sauce. It is a very common recipe that you'll find anywhere you travel throughout the Virgin Islands. Um, it's served in homes, it's served in restaurants, and, you know, like a good um, staple recipe, everyone has their own way of making it. This is my version of it. Um, I actually have made a version of this on my own before, you know, not knowing that it is actually um, really popular in the Virgin Islands. What sets it apart, though, is the fungi. Um, you know, fungi, it's spelled like fungi, but it's actually their version of polenta. And so they add okra um, and bell peppers to it. It actually really gives it a little extra flair than just basic polenta. And I think it's, um, it really, it makes the dish as well as the fish. Like all together, um, it's like such a great, like heartwarming home-cooked meal. Now there's also, like it, uh, this recipe also makes me kind of think that there's a lot of geographical diversity in in this book. I think it would be easy to just do a lot from the American West. Um, Was that a challenge for you to really try to bring in national parks from from all over the country? The challenge was that I had a page limit (laughs) for Mm -hmm. the book. And so I really had to narrow down my choices because, you know, there's so many great recipes. Um, I only used half of what Yellowstone gave me. I wanted to include all of them. Um, but there's also so many great regions with their own flavor profiles, um, you know, so I try to include a little bit of everything, you know, because everybody is familiar with the big parks like Yellowstone, Grand Canyon, Olympic, but also wanted to bring in these lesser known parks like the Virgin Islands um, or Isle Royale um, or Indiana Sand Dunes. So, you know, Parks that most people don't think about visiting or they don't think about that as like a first choice for a cookbook, I definitely wanted to introduce that in this book. Awesome. I would think that some of those places even have some of the most interesting culinary options to some degree, as opposed to just the broad American West. So Mm -hmm. let's go to Alaska. And there's just such a great Alaska section in this book. So, uh, you know, tell us your first uh, recipe from uh, an Alaska National Park. 
So the first one, this is a really unique one because I had a great chat with the owner um, when he provided this recipe. It is the wild-caught Copper River Red Salmon with Onion Gastrique. It's quite a mouthful, but it came from um, the McCarthy Lodge, the Salmon and Bear restaurant inside the McCarthy Lodge. So what I found interesting is that, um, you know, the lodge is inside. So first of all, this is uh, Rangel St. Elias National Park. It is the largest national park in our system. Um, and this recipe came from the town of McCarthy, Alaska, which in the early 1900s is actually the largest mining town in the state but has since dwindled to a population of, I don't know, you could count them by like a dozen or two dozen. Um, but what's interesting is that it is the last remaining living community inside a national park, uh, which is like a fun little factoid. And it's only like two blocks. <laughs> and that must inspire the cuisine to some degree, right? Well, you know, they fly in a celebrated chef. Um, Joshua Slaughter is the chef who cooks for them. And he he's very prolific and McCarthy Lodge is actually a foodie destination. Um, so there are people who will specifically travel there to sample the food at this restaurant. Uh, that is so cool. Are, are there any <laughs> other, like, I mean, not to put you on the spot, but are there any other examples of that in the country? Like I, I did not know that. And we've actually even talked about this national park on the podcast. It makes sense too, though, because where else are you going to eat? Right. Yeah. I mean, they, they need to be providing food for you. So <laughs> But what a what a smart way to get people to travel to some you know far out locations. Where are there any other parks that are like people go there for the chef? Not that I can think of, you know. And if you're going if you're coming to McCarthy, Alaska for the chef, like you're dedicated and you are going to expect a fabulous meal, you know. So the what's um, what they created here at the Copper River Red Salmon. What they told me is that it's very it's prepared in a very specific manner. Um, that makes it um, like it makes it so many steps above regular salmon, I guess. Um, the Copper River Red Salmon, they call it like the Wagyu of seafood because it has to um, swim like more than 200 miles uh, to the spawning grounds. And like all of that swimming, all of that activity actually gives it this like really um, buttery texture and like the flesh is like super succulent because of that. So there's, there's like hard work involved by everybody here, right? You got to get all the way out to Alaska. The salmon has to swim over however 200 miles or whatever you just said. So uh, this yeah. sounds like a very unique culinary experience in our national parks. Is this is this one of your favorites by any chance? It is one of my favorites because I did have the chance to make this at home. Because I was like, let me see. Let me see what this is all about. You know, I actually, I did not have access to Copper River Red Salmon um, because I would have had to have it flown from Alaska. Um, but I used, you know, uh, wild caught normal salmon. <laughs> Your publisher um, wouldn't pay for that to be flown in for you. Come on, <laughs> give me a break here. Um, and this is a really, it's a, it's a delicious dish. Like it sounds kind of intimidating with like this onion gastrique, but it's actually not that hard to make. There are different elements to it. Um, and so you do have like a few like pots and pans going on in the kitchen, but it's a special meal. This is what you serve to company. Um, and there are uh, ingredients in here like um, dandelion greens to make the dandelion pea stew or the foraged mushrooms, you know, and that is the exact recipe that was provided by the chef. But of course, you don't have to use foraged mushrooms. You can just use your favorite wild mushrooms or cremini mushrooms. And for the dandelion greens, you can use arugula or any similar green. Now this, I mean, this one sounds challenging to me, at least, to be honest, but in a general sense, um, 
did are a lot of these recipes challenging or i would think that a lot of them are a little bit more straightforward for the home cook that the national park cuisine is on the simpler side or or is there just a whole range from from easy to difficult I would say that there's a whole range, but most of them would be on the side of being relatively easy to prepare. You know, some of them are not necessarily meals that you would make on a weeknight if you only have like 30 minutes, but they make great weekend meals that wouldn't take more than an hour, for instance. And it's a learning experience, right? And that's, I mean, that's one of the cool things about the book is that, I mean, like I'm looking at this recipe from Wrangell St. Elias that we're talking about right now. And half of the page is sort of the story of McCarthy Lodge. You know, there's, it'd be so fun to go through and make these and learn about each of these parks as you go or revisit your memories of being at these parks. And obviously that was a major part of your intention here was to bring in the flavor of the parks. And you, you really did that. I'm glad you, you know, dedicated the space to do that with each of the recipes. Yeah, we tried. Um, you know, and the thing is, like, I don't want people to feel like, oh, like, this is this, um, you know, very foodie, gourmet recipe, like, you know, I'm not going to try it at home. You can take parts of it to make. You don't have to have the, like, this is a full meal that the chef gave, you know, where that's like the salmon sitting on a bed of, like, mushrooms and potatoes, and there's like a drizzle on top of it, plus, like, the onions on top of that. You can just do the salmon and the onion gastrique, you know, and serve it over a bed of rice or a salad. Did you pick Roosevelt baked beans as the first one for like a very intentional reason, sort of to say like, hey, this is very approachable? Because it is. I mean, I was I was dipping through the book all morning. Uh, It's a very approachable book. Yeah, well, that because it is very approachable and easy. um, And also, it's honestly one of my favorite recipes. I'm like a like I, I don't know, like I'm always teased by my family and so my friends where I love peasant style food. Despite like writing all these cookbooks, I really love like big like filling simple meals when I cook for myself personally um, and the Roosevelt baked beans like really fit that profile <laughs> all right awesome we've got one more from Alaska before we wrap up the show so um what do you got next so this comes from Denali and from Camp Denali which is the only wilderness lodge inside the park they provided a recipe for beef kofta with chermula which is um one of their most popular recipes. And what I found interesting was, you know, I had a chance to speak with the owner at Camp Denali, and she was telling me how their lodge is situated at the end of like a 90-mile single-lane dirt road. Um, And because of their distance and how remote they are, you know, like obviously they have to fly in a lot of their ingredients. Um, And being in Alaska, like if it's like within three or 500 miles of you, it's considered very local. <laughs> right. You know, but, um, but because of their location, they also have to um, grow a lot of their own food if they want it to be super fresh. And so they actually have a few greenhouses where they will grow their own salad greens, their own herbs. Um, and I thought this recipe was a great example of how sustainable they try to be given their remote location because it uses a lot of the fresh herbs that they normally would get out of their greenhouse. Um, and because, you know, they're trying to uh, not preserve, but, you know, like make use of the full beef order that they get, um, you know, they find it very easy to like grind up meat that's not used and turn it into uh, the beef kofta, which are like these little brochettes on skewers. Um, so it's just, uh, it's, it's a, great reminder of you know what you have to do to kind of survive out there in Alaska and the type of food that you make 
um, is really dependent on your resources. That's amazing how the culture of the place can be so tied into the cuisine and so tied into the food in, in, in every circumstance, really. And and in here, you know, you're tying it into the the culture, the history of the parks in such a wonderful way. And Linda, this is such a unique cookbook. Um, I, I love all your cookbooks, um, but this one feels like it needed to be in the universe because there are just, uh, I, I can't think of, of anything else like this. So thank you so much for doing this. Um, we're going to come back in a second. We'll wrap things up with Linda Lee, the author of the National Parks Cookbook. But before we do so, we have a sponsored message from our friends at RV SnapPad. Meet the world's only permanent jack pad. RV snap pads attach permanently to your RV leveling jack so you don't have to carry around blocks of wood or plastic blocks to level your towable or motorized RV. Simply snap them on one at a time and you're all set. RV snap pads go on in seconds and provide a lifetime of stability on the road. They are built for wanderers, adventurers, and vacationers just like you. SnapPad also now makes non-permanent leveling accessories for plastic levelers and buckets. They make everything you need to have the best leveling experience possible in your RV. We added RV snap pads to our travel trailer two years ago and love their durability, design, and functionality. They also make setting up and breaking down camp faster and easier. Finally, SnapPad recently collaborated with Camco Manufacturing to release the most durable, rugged, and stable scissor jack stabilizer available today. Head over to rvsnappad.com and use their Submit Your Rig tool to answer a few quick questions, and they will find you the perfect set of snap pads for your towable or motorized RV. Join the RV SnapPad revolution today. To find out more, visit rvsnappad.com. Welcome back to the show, everybody. We are here with Linda Lee, the author of the National Parks Cookbook, the best recipes from and inspired by America's National Parks. And I love both parts of that equation, but I think I like the inspired by even more. That's just me. Uh, and in here, you have recipes from Acadia to Zion. This is available wherever books are sold. You can get it on Amazon. You can get it at your local indie bookstore and order it. Uh, and it's a, it's a beautiful book. And even the look and the fonts and everything really capture um, that, that feeling of adventure that we get from our national parks. So Linda, I'm going to put you on the spot here. If you could go back to, or go to one of these parks for one of these meals, like right now, um, where would you want to go? Like what is and not oh, necessarily a wow. favorite, but I, I know <laughs> some people really don't like being put on the spot like this, but, uh, you know, where would you want to go and sit in one of these lodges and have one of these meals right now? Or are you in that place? Cause you've been to Olympic recently or you're there now. I would have to say at this point, it would be, it would be one of a couple. Like I can't just pick one, right? Like that's you so can difficult. Pick, you can pick more than one. You can <laughs> okay, pick more than so one. So definitely um, Roosevelt Baked Beans inside the Roosevelt Lodge. I wouldn't say that the Roosevelt Lodge itself is one of my like favorite lodges in the park, but I love the area that it's in because it feels so wild. Um, it's much less touristy than other parts of Yellowstone. I love how quiet it is. I love being out in like the Lamar. Um, wilderness area so that to me is so much about the environment and the baked beans are a super bonus of like finding great food out there I, I could not agree with you more we almost did not go to Lamar Valley on our Yellowstone trip and I think a lot of people probably almost do not go to Lamar Valley because yeah, it's, it's far so away <laughs> it's so out of the way and now um I honestly I'm gonna make a claim here like, if you don't go to Lamar Valley, I feel like you didn't go to Yellowstone, personally. I mean, to me, it feels like the 
the beating heart of, of Yellowstone. So I, yeah. I agree with those, those sentiments so much. Yeah. So you said you couldn't just pick one. Yeah. And then I would say the next one, um, maybe because I've, uh, you know, I'm like still in that PNW kind of state of mind. Um, I would go back to Kellogg Lodge, uh, where I ordered their clam chowder and I have the recipe, the exact recipe from the lodge that the chef gave me, um, in the book. And for me, like the Kellogg Lodge, the beach that it sits on is so wild, like all the driftwood. Um, you know, sometimes you get it on like a sunny day, but more often than not, it's kind of like a drizzly, kind of like gloomy day. And that adds to the allure, I think, of being on and this perfect kind of for chowder. beach. And perfect yeah, for chowder, for goodness exactly sake. Exactly. Perfect for chowder. Um, you know, I just love like the weather beaten atmosphere. <laughs> Now, you just said clam chowder and in Olympic National Park, and I think you mentioned a lobster chowder in Acadia, right, in, in the book? Mm -hmm. or did, yeah, lobster uh, stew in Acadia. So you got both coasts covered, and uh, Olympic is my favorite, and uh, Acadia is Stephanie's favorite, so uh, that's a little connection there between those. I always <laughs> think of Olympic and Acadia as being sister parks in this very weird way because they're both on the ocean and they both have mountains and all of that stuff so. yeah and yet they're so different right like both coasts are so interesting um with what they offer and i hadn't you know like one of the things i mean i'm gonna get off on a little bit of a tangent but one of the things i always wonder was why there were many more national parks on the west than there were on the east because i still have a lot of exploring to do on the east coast um and i found out it's just because of the railroads, but also because it was the least populated region at the time when the park started. And so they had space to preserve versus- yeah, It was all populated here and it was developed yeah. here. I'm, I'm in the East, you know, it was, we built before we could conserve, you know, sort of like yeah. made a mistake. And, you know, quite frankly, like where I am in New Jersey, I think all the time, this should have been a state park, you know, but instead it's, it's all privately owned. So, so this cookbook takes you from, from, from coast to coast. Uh, I love it. I think it's a must have. If you're a foodie, it's a must have. If you're a national parks lover, it's a must have. If you're a foodie and a national parks lover, I don't know why you haven't purchased this book already. You need to like, you need to like, uh, you know, turn off this podcast and go purchase <laughs> a copy. So where can everyone um, follow along? Tell us about your website because we haven't mentioned that yet. And what are your social media channels, et cetera, et cetera. So they can find my books anywhere. Books are sold. So it could be a bookstore, a retailer, a specialty retailer. <clears throat> Um, what's fun is that I get a lot of like pictures of people seeing my books out in the wild, and I've seen them in a range of places, especially outdoor-oriented stores. So um, anywhere books are sold, you can find my books. You can also find me online at gardenbetty.com, which is a blog that's about home and gardening and also outdoor adventuring. And on social, you can find me as Garden Betty. Linda Lee, I can't thank you enough. And I'm going to put you on the spot again. Will you come back on the podcast next summer? Whether there's yeah. a new book or not, I just want to talk to you about, about food and camping again next Absolutely. summer. Absolutely. You know, and there's so many, like you asked me to pick like, you know, two recipes from each of the, um, you know, sections of the country. And I, it was hard to narrow it down to two because there's so many that I want to share. And a lot of them have like such unique stories with them. So. Absolutely. So everybody go out and grab a copy of the National Parks Cookbook. And then once you do that, you're going to want to go back and buy all those other cookbooks, too. I have almost all of them. I'm going to get the other ones that I don't have because I love each one. They are terrific. And thank you so much for coming back on the RV Atlas. Have a great summer. Enjoy the rest of your, your travels in the Pacific Northwest. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure.
Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of the RV Atlas. To find out more about the topics discussed on this show, head on over to thervatlas.com. And to join the friendliest group of RVers, head on over to the RV Atlas group on Facebook and make sure to join us on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram at the RV Atlas. If you enjoy our show, please consider leaving us a review over on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And we will see you at the campground. See you at the campground.